the intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And my name is Elena. As real estate agents and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. Hey, we're back for another one. I know, another Friday, another podcast. I'm excited to be here with you guys. We're here with, of course, I'm Elena and Heather and our wonderful producer, Melanie. Hey, Melanie. How's it going? Hi, good afternoon. What's going on? Hmm, not much for me. Um, you know, I've told you how my son is does a lot of mock trial, yes. kind of thinking of the legal system here. Mm-hmm. And so today they are doing mock void dire. How do you how do you say that? Well, so I think it's wadire. Okay, it, but in Texas it's different, and I always get it confused. It's like vordier or wadire. Like <laughs> Texas butchers it essentially. Sure. So however, like it's a lot sp- of things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So whatever is the correct way to say it is not the way we say it in Texas. Correct. Yeah. So they were going downtown today to the uh, Bar Association and they were doing a mock, whatever That's you want to call really that. really cool. Yeah. And well, he sent me a picture because so I guess they gave all of the high schoolers different um, juror profiles and of who they were supposed to be and what they were supposed to be into and like what they thought about uh. it. And um and he was given Justin Bieber or, you know, Justin Bieber. And it, it was a whole basically sheet that he had to know about himself and his former relationship with Selena. Ooh. And uh, yeah, so I, he sent me this picture of it and he was like, oh, MG. Because, yeah, <laughs> he's a big rock guy. Yeah. But uh, it sounded fun. I kind of wanted to, to go so cool. do it. Wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall? Yeah. <laughs> In lots of places I'd like that. Yeah. Know so, everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The whole legal system this year, my eyes have been like really opened up. I mean, my sister's a lawyer, but she's more contract law. So it's kind of fun to hear, um, you know, actually trial law. Yeah. So what's going on with you two? What What have you been thinking about or watching, reading? Well, I am halfway through the latest Dateline episode. <laughs> and like, I really want to, I mean, not that I want to rush this, but I'm dying to get back to it because it's like the update on Scott Peterson. And I don't know what it is. I haven't gotten that far. Do you know what it is? Which Peterson was it? Because there's a few that are serving time for having murdered their wives. Yeah, is it unfortunately. Lacey? Yeah, Lacey. Lacey Peterson. Yes, I did follow that story when it was happening. I listened to, a, I think it was a Crime Junkie um, podcast, and they kind of gave, made you think about it in a different way. Mm-hmm. Like okay. He did, yes, that looks really shady, what he did there. But it could have been because of X, Y, Z. And then I was like, oh, man, that just like shifted every way I thought about it. So I don't know what I think anymore. But what are you thinking so far? Well, I don't know. There's just an update, but I don't know what the update is. So, or maybe Dateline is like, you know, recirculating. Um, I didn't know it was so long. I thought it was just repeats, reruns. I'm pretty sure it's a new oh, episode. Nice. That or they've really sucked me in. But <laughs> um Aren't you the same person who was recently watching a Charmed episode oh, yeah. <laughs> and thought it was the original 90 series? And she thought that the Brady Bunch was her generation. All right. All right, ladies. <laughs> I, I, I have to admit, I told my family about that at the table and they were like incredulous. They're like, no, but it was like in the early 70s. I'm like, yes, yes, I know. You know, I just do the best I can. <laughs> Um, but it makes me think, because remember when we were talking about John Bonet and all the intruder theories, mm-hmm. and there were so many 
oddities, right? Like there was mm-hmm. Santa and like the number of things yeah. that happened with Santa and you're like, well, it has to be him. Right. And then it wasn't. Now, I'm pretty sure Scott Peterson killed his wife. Mm, so okay. I'm not going out on that other limb here. But it does make you think about how sometimes things can just look really bad and maybe not mm-hmm. be just what they seem. Yeah. It makes you think about what you're doing that could one day be like, well, that one time she said she really liked gory podcasts. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we should have known then. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Well, are y'all ready to jump into this episode? Super today? excited about this one. Okay. Today we're going to discuss a story and a property that American true crime aficionados may not be incredibly familiar with, Alana, although it is very well known in England and France. Today's episode takes us all the way to the west coast of France, to the town of Nantes in the Loire Valley wine region. Now, we've talked on the show before about our love of old houses, but we have not covered a property nearly as old as this one yet. Yeah, it's really interesting to me that how new the United States is as like a a region, a a country. There's so many other places that have been around for so much longer. Yeah, absolutely. Like our expectation for what qualifies as quote unquote old is so subjective compared to many parts of the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I always talk about having an old house, but let's be honest now, it's like 115. Right. You know, um, it's all relative. They're not Dallas ruins. Yeah. (laughs) And then when I, uh, even when I lived in uh, Old Town Alexandria, Virginia, right outside of D.C., that that home, or at least that property, was maybe a couple hundred years old, which I thought was really old, but still relative. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember a while back we were in Prague and we were looking at these beautiful old buildings, and a lot of the buildings actually had the year painted on the outside mm-hmm. of when they were built, and it's like sixteen hundreds or you know, like really old. And I was like, "Wow, what is that building?" Thinking it was a, um, you know, it had to be a museum or something um, um, really interesting. And then I realized it was like the Deloitte and Touche accounting building. <laughs> and it just was in a really old, right. old building. <laughs> you know, but it makes me think, you know, again, we sell a lot of old houses. And, you know, if it's got like 1950s or 60s wiring and, you know, cast iron plumbing, it's like, oh, this is a money pit. Mm-hmm. I do wonder how they retrofit some of these old buildings. I think that'd be really interesting to find out, you know, how are they getting you know, new electrical and stuff, probably because a lot of those walls are plaster. Like it's hard to, you know, cut into plaster. Oh my gosh, you're right. Expensively. I think you're right. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now, before we dive into today's episode, I'd just like to go on record as saying that I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce the hell out of some of these names. So y'all just bear with me and my vague recollection of the French language. You didn't take French in high school? Oh, I did. Oh, yeah. Okay. I took six years of French, including AP French. Although I'm not sure what kind of great AP French education you get in, in the middle of Kentucky. <laughs> That's true. Um, what about you? Did you take French? No. Melanie? We didn't take French here. Uh, no, I uh, I did Spanish. I minored in Spanish in, uh, in college. That's oh, so cool. Fancy. That was smart of you. <laughs> Say something. Pardon no. <laughs> <laughs> That's also, uh, that works in English or in Spanish. <laughs> or French. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> All right. So if you're planning your trip to France and want to visit the town of Nantes, it's situated between Brittany and the Loire Valley. So if you're picturing a map of France, Nantes is in the northwest of the country, about 45 minutes from the Atlantic Ocean. It's actually the sixth largest city in France, with approximately 300,000 people in the city itself. And like many European cities, it has a historical and medieval inner center and is surrounded by more modern development. 
So the Loire River cuts through the city. So, you know, historically, most of the city's identity was tied to shipbuilding and trade through shipping channels. But today, modern-day Nantes is becoming a city with an artistic and playful cultural identity. Fun real estate fact about Nantes, it is home to the world's first occupied 3D printed house. That's wild. Isn't that cool? I wonder how you insure something like that. I don't know. The logistics. Right. The first one of its kind. That's creepy. Weird. So according to the BBC, the construction of this building cost about 20% less than a similarly sized building made with standard construction materials. And researchers believe that the next 3D printed house could be built in as little as 33 hours. Wow. I know. I obviously need to call my builder and tell him we've gone about this remodel all wrong. Um, So we're going to put pictures of this 3D house up on our website if you're interested, okay? So here we are in this vibrant town of Nantes. Then we find the Dupont de Lyon family living at 55 Boulevard Robert Schumann in the western suburb of Nantes. Or, as they say in French, Boulevard Schumann 55. How'd I get? How'd I do? I mean, it sounded good to me. Yeah. <laughs> my, my French with my Southern accent. <laughs> now, Boulevard Robert Schumann is a relatively busy road. It's one of the major arteries through the city. And if you're a history buff, you'll be interested to learn that this is the road that the German occupation troops used during World War II as they arrived in Nantes. And it's the same road that General Patton used four years later when he liberated the city liberated the city, entering Robert Schumann Boulevard on August 12th, 1944. That's cool. I know. Cool fact. Great history there. So, of course, you can check out photos of this home on our website, crimeestate.com, or on all of our social channels. But for now, let me paint a picture of this house for you. The home is in the heart of the residential district of Braille Barbary, a rather busy area that also houses many small businesses. From the outside of this relatively modest building, you have no idea what the interior of the home looks like or of the horrors that occurred in this property. By American standards, the house is small at approximately 1,300 square feet, with the highlight being the 725-square-foot private rear backyard protected by walls that are more than six and a half feet high. And I can see how that outside space would be a huge benefit in a home of this size in the middle of the city. I think I see where this is going. Oh, you do? I think so. Okay. We'll see if you're right at the end. For this particular home, the yard, which had the potential to be the jewel of the home, was not well landscaped. And it was basically just a large patch of dirt surrounded by shrubs, lilacs, and laurels. A terrace extends off the kitchen and living room overlooking the backyard. And without walking this property, I can tell you that a terrace like this off of the main areas of the house would serve to make the house feel a lot larger than its actual square footage. But unfortunately, in the heart of a city like this, the terrace isn't exactly private, and it's easily visible from the two neighboring properties. Like several of the homes we've talked about so far on the podcast, this home has a cellar below the terrace, making use of every possible square foot of space. And I suppose if you live in Nantes, you have to have a place to store all of your wine, right? If you're going to live in the the wine region of France. Makes total sense. The cellar's accessed via an eight-step staircase lined with flowers, but it's only about four feet high. So it's really not practical for much beyond storage as you really have to stoop to enter it. Or you can send one of the kids in. Oh, yeah. Grab the bottle of wine. I do that maybe too often, send my kid (laughs) for more wine. Um, Now, standing on the street looking at the home, you see a semi-detached two-story property. Like many homes in Europe or even larger U.S. cities, the homes are connected. And from the street, it looks like a wall of very similar looking flats. The first four or five feet of the bottom of the house 
is made of stone, with the rest of the property made of concrete stucco-like material. So you have this juxtaposition of a more asymmetrical stone on the bottom with a clean monochromatic facade above the stone. The windows have shutters on the exterior that can be opened or closed, and many of the windows have a Juliet-style balcony made of intricate ironwork. I love that. Sounds beautiful. I know. Every time I show a home with a Juliet balcony, I will always fight the urge to go up there and recite Shakespeare. Oh my gosh, I would love to see I you do that. I don't think my clients would like that. <laughs> you know, it's funny. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Recently, um, over spring break, we had rented a, a, like a cabin kind of thing that had a Juliet balcony, and my kids were amused slash confused by it. They kept opening the door going, what is the purpose of this? <laughs> like, because the other room had an actual real balcony and they were like, what, what, so you just kind of put your head over it? I don't understand. Why wouldn't you just have a window here? Totally, um, this architectural feature was lost on them. Yeah. So I'm sort of with your kids. I've never really understood why you would have one like in a big house out in the suburbs instead yeah. of just having right. an actual bath. That's where they are, right. Right. But I can see where in the middle of the city to like open oh, and get some fresh air, that would be mm-hmm. a huge feature. Yeah. For those who aren't familiar with the term, a Juliet balcony is essentially a small railing that covers a set of French doors or a window. It's nice because it allows you to open the doors and windows on a second or third story and get some fresh air. But the railing prevents anyone from falling from a higher story when the doors or windows are open. Sometimes these balconies will have just enough room for one person to come out and stand on. Yeah. And of course, the name comes from the famous scene in Romeo and Juliet when Juliet is standing on the balcony professing her love to Romeo. Are you professing your love to so, Romeo? Yeah, yeah. When you're showing, Anybody, I love that. Yeah. So if you were going to compare the home at 55 Robert Schumann Boulevard to something in the United States, I'd say it has a very New Orleans style to it, which makes sense given that New Orleans was a part of the French First Republic until the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. Can I tell you all about my 10-year-old, his favorite city that he's ever been to is New Orleans. I love she that. loves New Orleans, which kind of scares me. But I do too. I love New Orleans too, but I'm 43. Does he like the architecture or the vibe? He likes the party vibe. Yeah. yeah. I see that. <laughs> <laughs> we were on a street corner uh, over the summer. Uh, that sounds weird. We were going through New Orleans and we were on a street corner waiting to cross the street. And he was on the, standing right at the corner and there was music playing. You know how it is on the corners. There's four bars that's playing music and he was just dancing in this bus full of bachelorettes came by and they started, they're all hanging out the side of the bus, like cheering him on. They're like, go, 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 cheering him on was dancing. So that made an impression on him. Yeah, yeah, I bet it did. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's the impression that he's going to remember is bachelorette parties are fun <laughs> and they make me want to dance outside a bar. Uh, right. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I'd love to just eat my way through New Orleans. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Now, I love New Orleans just because it is so unlike any other city in America. You know, there's really only a few cities in America, in my opinion, that you you are instantaneously know where you are. It's got a like completely distinct vibe. Um, mm. And, you know, New Orleans is definitely that way. I'd see um, Miami is that way. San Francisco, to some extent, is yeah, that way. I can see that. And, you know, like that just is so unique to themselves and especially in the architecture, food. I think you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Uh, those cities too, I feel like they're they're easier to get around. They, they're they more on a grid and Dallas is kind of all wonky. Like our, na- our neighborhoods don't have that same feel. Like, like I think we talked about it last week. One, there's, you know, a quote unquote good neighborhood is right next to quote unquote a bad neighborhood or it's all just kind of intertwined in together and just like a mishmash 
So like those cities make sense to me. Those bigger <laughs> cities like New Orleans are on a grid. Well, maybe because like the historic area of New Orleans, which is probably mostly what you've you know been through. You're probably not hanging out in the suburbs. Right, <laughs> right. All right. So not New Orleans, back in Nantes, we have the home where the DuPont de Lyon family is living. The patriarch of the family, Xavier, comes from a very prestigious family descended from nobility, and Xavier inherited his father's count title after his death. The matriarch of the family is Agnes. Agnes was known to be a truly kind person. She was also very religious, teaching at a Catholic school and attending Mass every Sunday. And Xavier and Agnes have a really beautiful love story. They met in Versailles in the early 80s. Not Versailles, like you did that one time. That's right. I'll get it right this time. (laughs) Now, when they met, Xavier was 20 and Agnes was 17. And despite the fact that they were madly in love, Xavier wasn't ready to settle down into family life. He wanted to go traveling and have adventures. So he broke up with Agnes and left Versailles. A year later, he returns to Versailles and Agnes is pregnant with another man's baby. But they're still very much in love with each other. So they decide to get married and Xavier adopts the baby and they start their lives together as a family of three. According to a good friend of Xavier's who was featured on the Unsolved Mysteries episode about this case, marrying an unwed pregnant woman was very much outside the cultural norm at that time in Versailles, especially for a man in a noble aristocratic family like Xavier's. Over the course of the next 20 years or so, the family has a fairly normal life. Despite Xavier's family heritage, they live a solidly upper-middle-class lifestyle, and Xavier and Agnes go on to have three more children together. Besides Arthur, the son that Xavier adopted, they have Thomas, who is two years younger than Arthur. Two years after that, they have a daughter, Anne, and three years later, they round out their family with another son, Benoit. That's a lot of people for a 1,300-square-foot house. Is that eight? Five five kids? Four kids. They oh. have four kids, right? And two adults? Dang. Six. That's crazy. Yeah. I've never lived in a 1,300-square-foot house. Have you? Uh, No. We had a little condo, but it was just me and Aaron. But it, I think it was smaller than 1,300, but it's just the two of us. And yeah. that was hard. Yeah. The kids take up a lot of room, it mm-hmm. seems. Their stuff does. I mean, I've lived in small places. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, some of the places that we had on the East Coast were pretty small. But yeah, they were only when we had maybe a baby. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I mean, my my husband's um, mother, her entire family of like four or five kids, you know, was in a very small house like this. So yeah, I mean, a lot of people did it. Yeah. All right. So, it, you know, it's fairly ambiguous. It's fairly ambiguous what Xavier actually did for a living, but it seems that he created several businesses with limited success. And despite Xavier's deep French heritage, he had a serious fascination with America. Around 2000, in pursuit of the American dream, the entire family relocated to Florida, where Xavier tried to make a go of another business venture. As you might imagine, Alana, this was not an easy transition, and they ultimately ended up back in France. Unfortunately, not only did the move not work out as planned, but it was also very expensive and it used up most of the family's assets. And while their story started out as this beautiful love story, overcoming the obstacles and expectations of their time, there are reports that as early as 2002, there were issues with Agnes and Xavier's marriage. According to comments Agnes purportedly made on a French medical website, she said, I am lacking in everything, tenderness, love, 
mutual friends, sex, everything. I have a husband who is very old-fashioned in his way of being in the family. The father is the head. He gives an order. We execute it without seeking to question or understand, period. She goes on to write another post. Xavier is too judgmental, too quick to argue, too rigid, too military. There's no more tenderness between us, no more attention, no softness, no sex. When I ask him if he's happy, his response is the same. Yes, I am, but we could all die tomorrow. That would be better. In fact, in 2005, Anya's even filed a police report against her husband for assaulting Arthur, their eldest son. In addition to marital problems, financial problems weighed heavily on the family with failed business after failed business. In addition to marital problems, financial problems weighed heavily on the family. With failed business after failed business, the family had relied mostly on money inherited from Anya's family, and that money was running out. So it's a little unclear to me at what point in their marriage Xavier procured a mistress. But by 2010, he wrote to his mistress in Paris saying that he was, quote, ruined at rock bottom like never before. I am awake almost every night with these morbid ideas, burning down the house after giving everyone sleeping pills or killing myself so that Agnes gets 600 euros, 600,000 euros, excuse me. In any case, my life will end in the next few months if I don't get 25,000 euros immediately. Most of the time, I am not in a dream, but in a nightmare, and I can't escape, except, of course, by doing something radical and final. That makes me really sad. And scared. Yeah. And guess how to not have all these issues. Don't have a mistress. Kate, you would think if you were in like major financial trouble, maybe not adding somebody. The last thing on your mind, I would think, but (laughs) I'm not a man. I don't know. But Melanie, didn't you say when you were doing some research for this that like maybe he had borrowed money from her before? Uh, Yeah. Somewhere I read, and I can't quote where I read it from, was that he had in fact borrowed money from his mistress. I mean, and maybe that's what he's doing right there when he's saying, if I don't get 25,000 euros, (laughs) uh, maybe that's part of it. But yeah, kind of wonder, you know why is this mistress giving money? You know, what is he, what is he offering to the, uh, to the equation? Mm-hmm. Great question. Yeah. Okay, so now we're going to fast forward to July of 2010. At this point, the family is living in Nantes, France, and all of the kids are teenagers. Xavier sends two emails to friends of his that oddly claim that there might one day be, quote, accidents that happened to his family that he might be blamed for. The email goes on to say, I hope that even after a police investigation, my parents, brothers, and sisters will never be led to believe that I intentionally caused these accidents, even if the evidence is strong. What do you do with an email like that? I mean, I feel like you have to call the authorities or call, like, get him to a mental health specialist, right? right? Yeah, mental health. Yeah. And I wonder if anyone came to Anya's and warned her that they were receiving these Letters or emails? Yeah, that's a really good question. I really didn't find any information about that if they did, but you're right. At this point, you know, Xavier's written to three different people with these concerning messages. So six months after these emails are sent to friends in January of 2011, Xavier's father dies of a heart attack. In cleaning out his father's things, he realizes that while he may now have the title of Count de Pont de Lyon, he really doesn't have anything else and that his father isn't leaving him any money upon his death. Ultimately, he inherits a family signet ring and a rifle, but not much else. Okay, so Alana, in the timeline of this story, we are now to April 2011. Anya's the mother, who has remained devoutly religious, is working as an assistant in a local Catholic school. 
Arthur, the eldest, is 20 years old and attending university about an hour away where he aborted. I assume that means he lived on campus. Don't you think? Yeah, that's what I would think. And he was studying for a technical degree while also working at a local pizzeria. Thomas is 18 and has recently started studying at another local university for music, and he is also living in the university residence hall. Anne is 16 and in the 11th grade. She models for mail order catalogs part-time while keeping up good grades at the private Catholic school that she and her younger brother also attends. And Benoit is 13 and serves as a local altar boy at their church. Sweet. Yeah. So the first week of April was very odd in this family's household. And this timeline's really important. So I'm going to try to be as clear as possible, but stop me if you have a question. Okay. Okay. So on April 1st, Arthur, who remember is living about an hour away at the university, didn't show up to pick up his paycheck at the pizzeria, which was odd. Mm -hmm. However, he was seen eating dinner with his family a few days later. On Saturday, April 2nd, Xavier made a suspicious purchase. Four bags of quicklime, each about 10 kilograms or 22 pounds, from different shops around Knott's. On April 3rd, Xavier, Agnes, and three of their children, all of them except for Thomas, who is still at school, went out to dinner and then the movies. On April 4th, which was a Monday, Anne and Benoit did not attend school, supposedly due to an illness. Friends were concerned when they couldn't contact them via text or online. Thomas, the second oldest child, had returned to school on Monday, April 4th, but had been called back home on Tuesday, April 5th, after he received a message from his father telling him that he needed to come home that night as his mother had been in a cycling accident. Thomas took a train home that same night and was reportedly seen having dinner that evening. The next day, April 6th, Thomas's friends tried reaching out to him to make sure everything was okay about his mother's bike accident. However, he only received brief responses from, quote-unquote, Thomas, claiming that he was ill and that he wouldn't be coming to class. On April 7th, the day after Thomas's friend received that message, Arthur's girlfriend stops by the house because she hadn't heard from Arthur in a few days. She knocks on the front door, but even though the lights were on in the home, no one came to the door, and she didn't hear the dogs or anyone else inside. Okay, Alana, Melanie, are you all with me so far on the timeline? So far. Okay. So on Monday, April 11th, which is now three months after Xavier's father's death, a neighbor noticed that the house had its shutters closed, which was unusual. So remember we talked about the front of the house had shutters on the outside that could be opened or closed. Mm -hmm. So upon further investigation, the neighbor found a note on the mailbox on the front of the home that said to stop leaving mail at the address and to return all mail to sender. So I personally think that this note for the mailman on the door is much more concerning than the shutters being closed. But the neighbor was fixated on the shutters, saying that they left them open even when they were on vacation. They never closed the shutters. So by Wednesday of that week, when nothing had changed at the house, the neighbor calls the police and they go out to the house for a welfare check. The front door is locked, and when they can't get in, they call a locksmith to open the front door. When they finally enter the house, they really don't find anything that unusual. They make a note that some of the beds have sheets that have been removed, and some closet doors are open. But the police feel like the family left voluntarily and tell the neighbor that there's no need to investigate this any further. However, this neighbor is awesome, and she continues to push the police to investigate, arguing that all but one of their cars is still at home, and that the car that is gone is too small for the whole family to leave in. 
So this all takes place on April 13th. By April 14th, letters from Xavier and Añez have started to arrive at friends' and relatives' houses. Anne and Benoit's school received one that withdrew the kids from school and stated the family was moving to Australia for professional reasons. When the school reached out to Xavier and Añez after receiving this letter, they were unable to reach either one of them. More concerning, though, was the letter that arrived at friends' and family's houses. This four-page letter in part read, Hey, everyone, huge surprise. We have to leave urgently for the U.S. due to a very particular set of circumstances that we will explain below. When you read this letter, we will no longer be in France and won't be able to return for an as-yet-undetermined period of time. The letter goes on to outline that the family had been working for the Drug Enforcement Agency in the United States ever since returning from Miami. It states that because he was about to be a crucial witness in a drug trial, that his family had to disappear and go into witness protection. As a result of this change in identity, they will no longer be able to be contacted by any family and friends. That's interesting. What would you do if you received a letter like that? Oh, depends on who it's from. It sounds like someone's been watching too many movies. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So not surprisingly, Anya's family thinks that something is very wrong when they receive this letter. They say she would have never left with the children without at least telling them first. So they send this letter to the authorities. On April 15th, five days after they were first called to the house, the police return again for a welfare check on the family, this time paying a little more attention when they walk through the vacant house. And this time, they note that the photos have been removed from frames hanging on the wall. And they think this actually sort of checks out with the story that Xavier told everybody, right? So if the family had to assume new identities, wouldn't they remove all traces of their former identities? Mm -hmm. Or another plausible scenario, you know, if they were moving to the United States, wouldn't they want to take items that were precious to them Mm -hmm. with them? So again, please think that maybe this is odd, but they really don't have any reason to suspect foul play. Four days later, on April 19th, at the insistence of Anya's family, the police returned again. Now, this marks their fourth visit to the home. They return again the following day, but once more, nothing has changed, and they don't really think they have anything to investigate. On April 21st, on their sixth visit to the house, the police find something odd under the terrace. In what can only be described as perfect theatrical timing, the district attorney is actually holding a press conference about the missing family at the exact same time the police discovered something at the house. So you've got video of this DA saying that, you know, the police are looking into this mysterious disappearance of this family. And then he suddenly halts this press conference to take a phone call. And when he returns, he just postpones the press conference and leaves. Dramatic. Very. Meanwhile, back at the house, the police have discovered plastic bags with bodies inside of them buried under the terrace. The bodies were wrapped in the missing blankets and duvets from the beds in the home before being placed into bags along with small religious icons like a candle or cross. So authorities think that this means that they were killed by someone close to them that wanted them to have a decent and traditional Catholic burial. In one grave, they find Arthur, Anne, Benoit, Agnès, and the family's two Labrador retrievers. In the other grave, they find Thomas. And it's unclear to the authorities exactly when Agnès, Arthur, Anne, and Benoit were killed. Was it the night of the third, after their dinner and movie as a family? 
or was it later that week once Thomas had returned home? Despite the ambiguity in this timeline, investigators were certain that by April 6th, the entire family except for Xavier were dead. Though side note here for later, some witnesses claim to have seen Anya's alive and well as late as April 7th. Hmm. So Xavier's body was not discovered alongside the rest of his family, so he automatically becomes the prime suspect in their murder investigation, and the police issue a warrant for his arrest. Now, despite the odd letters that were sent by Xavier's friends and family really don't think that he could have done this. First and foremost, they don't think he's the kind of guy who kills his whole family. They just didn't think that he could or would do that. It's like I'll, last week, the, the wealthy person, they thought, oh, he would never, he, could, he couldn't. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like nobody is the kind of person that kills their whole family, right? Mm. Okay. Well, that's another conversation <laughs> for another day. But beyond that disbelief, they also think that Xavier was physically incapable of being able to dig the holes in the small space under the terrace, which would have required him to either bend down while digging or dig from a kneeling position. So you remember when we were describing the house earlier that we said the area under the terrace was only Mm -hmm. about four feet high. And apparently Xavier was known to have excruciating back pain. And his friends think that that would have just prevented him from being able to dig those holes under the balcony. So, of course, with this gruesome discovery, everyone is asking, how did this happen and why did this happen? So let's talk a little bit about the investigator's theory of this crime. The autopsy showed that the children had been given sleeping pills. And Anya's did not have drugs in her system, but she was known to use a sleep apnea machine nightly to help her sleep. Records show that the machine suddenly stopped at 3 a.m. And this leads police to believe that she was the very Mm. first victim. Each person was killed with two bullets to the head from a long rifle, and police are able to determine that the murder weapon was the same rifle that Xavier inherited from his father earlier that year. All of the children were found still wearing their pajamas and given the sleeping pills in their system and the fact that they still had on pajamas, police believe that they were killed in their sleep. However, they find absolutely no trace of blood in the bedrooms or anywhere else in the house for that matter. Wasn't the gun a shotgun? Yes. How does that not leave blood? I have no idea. Hmm. No idea. And only because Xavier's body is not found along with the other bodies is he really the suspect. I mean, nothing else points Mm -hmm. to him. They don't have fingerprints. And they actually don't find any fingerprints or DNA at the crime scene. Yeah. Shouldn't DNA be all over the crime scene? It's his house. Shouldn't his DNA be everywhere? Yeah. You would think that I mean, you would find my DNA all over my house right. if you came in yeah. and started investigating. So, yeah, that's a little suspicious mm-hmm. as well. I agree all this evidence is really damning, but his friends argue that someone who cared so much about his family's aristocracy and family lineage would not kill his three sons who would carry on the family name. If anything, he had a motive to keep them alive, not kill them. But police argue that he didn't want to embarrass his family with the financial ruin that he felt was imminent, and that was his motive to commit the crime. Upon further investigation, police find that in February of that year, Xavier purchased a permit for the rifle that he inherited for Xavier purchased a permit for the rifle that he inherited from his father. He also went through a fair bit of effort to obtain Oh my God, sorry. Start, start over on upon further. 
Upon further investigation, police find that in February of that year, Xavier purchased a permit for the rifle that he inherited from his father. He also went through a fair bit of effort to obtain a firearms license and bullets. Unlike in the United States, getting a handgun in France can be quite a chore. The firearm Xavier had was classified as a Category B in France, which requires the owner to be affiliated with a shooting range, have attended a minimum of three shooting lessons with an instructor, and also hold a medical certificate affirming that the holder is in good mental and physical condition to possess a firearm. Xavier obtained his firearms license in February 2011, two months before his family was killed. He also inquired about the effects of silencers on the sound of gunshots and ended up buying one in March of that year. And this is really the most damning evidence against him so far. That's a lot to process and that's horrible, but why two bags? Three were in, three bodies were in one bag and Thomas was in the bag by himself. Is that right? Yeah. So let me go back to the timeline to answer that question. So investigators believe that the family, with the exception of Thomas, was killed on the evening of Sunday, April the 3rd or the morning of Monday, April 4th. Okay. Um, because remember, Anne and Benoit did not show up for school the morning of April 4th. However, this is where the timeline starts to get a little tricky because as I mentioned earlier, several neighbors reported having seen Anya's outside of the house around noon on the 5th and possibly again on the 7th. And if these sightings are accurate, it would sort of throw off the timeline. Mm, okay. But so I guess it's possible that Xavier was holding his family hostage or otherwise convincing them not to leave the house. But if he didn't kill them on the 3rd or 4th, there would have been this significant amount of time where they would have been left alone in the house when Xavier had dinner with Thomas nearly an hour away from the house on April the 4th, the night he told Thomas to come home because remember, he said Anya's had been in that mm -hmm. cycling accident. Mm -hmm. So really the most likely scenario is that these neighbors are probably misremembering the exact date. Mm -hmm. But it does call into question exactly when Xavier committed the murders and the extent to which the family knew something was going on but just wasn't able to do anything about it. But to answer your question, it's believed that Xavier probably killed Anya's, Arthur, Benoit, and Anne a day or two prior to killing Thomas, who was away at school. Okay. And so police believe that Thomas was killed Tuesday night after the rest of the family was already dead and had been probably already buried in a separate grave. I wonder what the point was of not murdering everyone at once. Yeah. So if you'll remember, Thomas was technically Xavier's heir because his <sighs> eldest son, Arthur, mm. while adopted by Xavier, wasn't his blood relative. So at the end of the day, investigators think that maybe he was actually sort of hesitating and killing the the rightful heir wow, to his okay. family. Doesn't that sound so medieval? It totally does. Maybe he presented that to Arthur and Arthur didn't like it and he had to, felt like he had to do that. Like presented like, hey, you're not the heir? No, presented, oh, not Arthur, Thomas. Like, hey, this is what happened. This is what went down. Oh, are you good? <laughs> no, yeah. We cool? <laughs> yeah, that that's one idea. Know. Who knows? Um, okay, so the day after the press conference and the discovery of the bodies, police find Xavier's car, the small one that the neighbor told the police was missing, parked in the city of, ooh, I'm going to butcher this, Roquebrune sur Argent. Ooh, it still sounded pretty. Okay, good. Um, if you know how it's actually pronounced, just, you know, go with me there. 
So using traffic cams and cameras from businesses, they're able to determine that he left Nantes on April 10th, the day before his neighbor first alerted the police that she thought something was wrong. And he traveled down the coast of France, stopping to have lunch, staying the night at hotels, all the while using his own credit cards. And so the police have a hard time explaining this behavior. Like, if this man just killed his entire family, wouldn't he be trying to hide or escape? But statistically, in 98% of family massacres, the murderer then commits suicide. So police think that maybe this drive down the coast might be one last trip down memory lane and that he's planning to kill himself once Mm. he reaches his final destination. Xavier is last seen on a security camera outside of his hotel on April 14th in Rockbrun sur argent In the video, he is seen walking away from his car and carrying a long garment bag. By the looks of the bag, the police believe it may contain the rifle used to kill his family. And this part of the country, Atlanta, is known for being like really mountainous with a lot of woods and cliffs. And so police think that he just intends to walk into the woods and commit suicide. Mm -hmm. So they mount an extensive search for either Xavier or his remains. They have people searching caves. They have canines scouring the area. They search via helicopter. But no trace of Xavier is ever found. Ever. Like ever, ever. ever. Wow. Yeah. So the question is, did Xavier kill his family and then plan an elaborate setup to give himself as much time as possible to escape before the bodies were found? Did he end up taking his own life in the mountains or did he use that as a point of escape and walk through the mountains to Italy? Did he take a boat or a cargo ship out of the country? No one knows exactly what his plan was and the whereabouts of Xavier de Pont de Leon is still a mystery. Though there have been several potential sightings of him over the years. In 2015, a journalist received what appeared to be a family photo of two of Xavier's sons sitting at a table with the message, I am still alive from then until this hour on the back of the photograph. Despite handwriting analysis and DNA testing, the police were not able to trace the initial source of this letter. In 2018, police received a tip that Xavier was hiding out at a monastery in Rockbrun sur argent the same city where his car was found. They thought he was masquerading as a monk, but that turned out not to be the case. The last known potential sighting was in 2019 when a man believed to be Xavier was arrested in Glasgow, Scotland. And this was actually quite the international snafu because the police in Scotland were told that this man's fingerprints were a match to Xavier's, when in fact that was just sort of an error on the investigator's part, like a miscommunication. And DNA later cleared this man and he was released. Despite an international search that has been ongoing for almost 10 years, Xavier still remains at large and the true motive behind the five gruesome murders remains a mystery. Wow. Yeah. I'm still trying to understand how he was just never just gone, just in the mountains. And it blows my mind that in this day and age, somebody can disappear. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could see how you could do it before, you know, a lot of cameras Mm -hmm. and internet. Mm -hmm. But I think, I mean, I could tell you where my husband is right now. You got to find my iPhone (laughs) and Mm -hmm. tell you where my son is and where he left his watch. And (laughs) I think you would have to really be thoughtful about disappearing. Why did it take, I'm sorry. Oh. No, oh. I, I was just going to say that, I mean, this was 10 years ago. And so a lot has changed in the last 10 years mm-hmm. with electronics. And I think I read somewhere that they never found any of the cell phones for any of uh, the family members. So it could be that they were like all thrown in the river or, you know, something yeah. like that. Um, you know, like the most probable story is, yeah, 
he went and committed suicide somewhere. But then, you know, there's that other part of you saying that he was so public about the way that he left town was to throw people off the scent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, he had really put a lot of thought into this plan. I mean, he mailed those letters. It's possible he mailed the letters before he had even killed his family. I mean, probably not, but it's possible. Well, I mean, if he, he obviously didn't initially intend to commit suicide is, is what you got to think if that is in fact what happened because why would he buy all of the, um, I don't know, the lime, the things that he put on top mm-hmm. of the bodies to get them to dissolve? Um, why did, you know, some a bunch of the different steps he took to throw them off the track, you're only doing if you're trying to kind of be able to evade detection or at least uh, d- delay the detection as That's long a good as point. possible. If you were planning to kill yourself anyway, why would you, why would it matter? Right. You? Right. I mean, you. I mean, if you, that's why a murder suicide is kind of obvious mm-hmm. what exactly happened. It was a definitely attempted to not be discoverable. Hmm. Okay. Makes you want to go. Hmm. Hmm. All right, so let's talk about this house on Boulevard Robert Schumann, which the French media dubbed La Maison de Horreur. Uh, After the crime occurred in 2011, the house remained essentially in evidence while the police were conducting their investigations, and it stayed that way until the beginning of 2012. Now, the DuPont de Leon family was renting this home, so once their extended family, you know, removed their possessions... And I should say, like, in that letter, that four-page letter he sent, Xavier actually listed what he wanted done with all of the possessions in the house. So he was like, mm-hmm. you know, this antique bureau goes to Aunt Jen and make sure you sell this stuff and this stuff can go to charity. He was very specific about outlining what he mm-hmm. wanted done with his possessions. So once the possessions have been removed, the landlord sets about doing a few repairs to the property. Most importantly, the front door was repainted a blue-green color to cover up all of the evidence of the adhesive crime scene tape that had left a permanent residue on the front door. In 2014, the House of Horror was put up for sale. It was purchased in 2015 for around 200,000 euros. That equates to about 220,000 U.S. dollars a price which was well below the market price of 400 to 450,000 euros. This couple completely renovated and redecorated the home before moving in and eventually listed the home for sale again in 2019 for 479,000 euros. A real estate agent is quoted as saying, the neighborhood is prized, the house is worth more, but it is mandatory to report the massacre that took place in the house. Glad that's mandatory in France. And unfortunately, ladies, I don't have access to France's version of the MLS. So I'm sort of unclear as to whether or not the property sold in 2019 or not. If you're listening in France and you can find out for us, we would love to know what happened to the house so we can give everybody an update. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe you'd be allowed on the MLS if they knew you took six years of French. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Like, no, I got this, guys. Yeah. Can I tell you, so when I was in college, I have a Bachelor of arts or whatever. Um, and I had to have like eight hours of a foreign language and they were all at 8 a.m. like Monday mm. through Thursday. I was like, I can't do that. Mm-mm. And so uh, I clepped out of French in college. Dang. And I do not, I do not know one thing I said on that test or one thing I read, but somehow I like by osmosis had learned enough nice. to, you know, answer multiple choice correctly. Yeah. Good job. 
You're impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Love it when you can do that kind of thing. So, okay. So pull out your pocketbooks. Would you list it? Assuming you could list houses in France. Would you live here? What do you think? I would list it. And I usually would not live there, but I kind of feel like I would on this one. Really? Yeah. I don't know. You're so all over the board. I know. Well, usually it's a a hard no, I feel like, but I don't know. It just seems, I don't know. Is it because it's so old? You feel like there has to be like a thousand other deaths that have occurred there? I think that has something to do with it, honestly. I really do. Because surely something, I mean, that's not the only crazy thing that happened there. I would be, I would live there. Yeah, I, I wouldn't live there for sure. You know, usually I'm the uh, flexible yeah. one and I would say a hard no really? on this one. I also have to say I've seen pictures of it and it's oh, not I super, okay. it's not super, uh, you know, exciting to look at um, from that perspective. Um, but also... I mean, every neighbor, I mean, this is like in a city area where, I mean, your neighbor is six feet away on both sides Mm. and they will completely know the story. And I also found all these like articles on Reddit about this house Mm. and people posting the address and the pictures on the outside and lots of chitter chatter about it. I feel like you would have a lot of tourism Mm -hmm. um, because it is in a city center versus somewhere that would be a little bit more you know, you'd have to drive to them and here you could just walk by it mm-hmm. and point pictures okay. at it. I don't know. Yeah. And I'm trying to think, you know, I, I sort of joke that I would list anything, but this one would be hard for me, I think, because it would be hard to like renovate or make it different. You're not going to be able to probably change the address. It sort of is what it is. Um, and it sounds like a lot of a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Like I think you would have to really hustle to get that one sold. Yeah. We totally switched drills on yeah, this one completely. Yeah, well, the pictures that were on Reddit of the 2015, I believe the initial um, time that the real, uh, the realtor put it on the market, yeah, they needed some staging. They need some professional photography because this house looked like not good. Mm. Like, I mean, it, I got to imagine it's prized for the location. And I do think having a large um, outdoor space in a city center, really, it makes the difference. Um, and it doesn't sound like so necessarily with this family, but in my experience in a lot of these European um, communities, especially in more um, upper, you know, middle-class upscale communities, they might have a small city center place that might be like 1,500 square feet, but yet they have like a, uh, a place in their family village or somewhere kind of that's more rural. When I was a foreign exchange student in Spain in high school, like the, the house that we lived in in the city was probably about, you know, 1,500, 10, you know, 1,000 square feet. But then they had a large village that they would go to on weekends that had a little bit more elbow room. Okay, interesting. It's like the summer home, but you use it on the weekend. Yeah, I'm acting like I'm an expert in this. I'm really not. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it makes sense. Okay. So I I think it's really interesting that we change perspectives. I like that. It is. Because I I was thinking, I was like, well, Melanie's going to live in anything (laughs) and Alana's a hard pass on everything. Do we even keep asking this question? But yeah, I think that's interesting. Yeah. All right. So do you know what we have coming up next week? Have you thought Uh, about it yet? New Orleans. Ooh. We talk about it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of tied into it today. So yeah, that'll be exciting. Totally. Awesome. Yeah. And we did not know that when we were talking no, about that's New Orleans. Perfect. All right. Well, we'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye.
Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our Crime Estate family. If you're curious about today's feature Crime Estate, you could find additional photos and details from today's episode online at crimestatepodcast.com or on Facebook and Instagram by following at Crime Estate Podcast. Have a Crime Estate we should cover? Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.